0: Wake up. It's the Sleep Unplugged podcast, episode 65, REM behavior disorder, wild night is calling. Welcome everyone to the Sleep Unplugged podcast. My name is Chris Winner. I'm a neurologist and sleep specialist and your host for this exciting episode of the Sleep Unplugged podcast. If you're new to the Sleep Unplugged family, welcome. If you're a veteran, not only welcome back, but I know you're excited that this is the topic of this week's episode because we have talked about REM behavior disorder on multiple episodes, but have not quite gotten around to recording it. But tonight is the night we are finally doing REM sleep, REM behavior disorder. And it's a great topic. It's an important topic and one that I really look forward to talking to uh, you about. Before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to the men. Of Wabash College. They hosted me on their beautiful campus in Crawfordsville, Indiana uh, for two days, and we talked about sleep with the students, and we talked about sleep with the athletic teams and their public health initiatives, and it was just a great time. And it's always really exciting when the sleep doctor shows up At a college where college things are happening and not only is this a college but this is a college of men and it's like fire marshal problematic standing room only at the lecture and they didn't have to go there wasn't credit hours attached to it there was no disciplinary action if you didn't attend this is the caliber of an individual that goes to Wabash and I appreciate the president and Jim, the, the chief of staff and everybody there was awesome and lovely. Really appreciate it. We always get our show start of comments, corrections, and criticisms. Wanted to give a shout out to Brendan RPGST. You can find him on Twitter. He had two really insightful comments. The first one was about episode 64. Which we did last week about sleep and football and he said, yeah, you know the study that the NFL commissioned about sleep apnea wasn't that great because it was basically um, number one, it was a very simple sleep study. number two, it was unattended and number three that you know these home sleep studies tend to underestimate the actual amount of sleep that's, you know, the sleep uh, problems that are going on. So he was in full agreement. Yeah, this was not the greatest way to introduce or, or to measure sleep in football players. The really insightful thing Brendan RPGST came up with was in episode 63, we talked about a little bit about dire straits, a little bit about Jimmy Buffett at the top of the show. And I said, look, I would have loved to have made Jimmy Buffett the focal point of our episode, Sleep and Anxiety. To honor his memory but i couldn't for the life of me think of a great jimmy buffett song about anxiety because that's everything he does he sings against right having a good time relaxing being free and sure enough Brendan rpgst had a great idea he said hey what about changes in latitudes changes in attitudes i'll quote from the song changes in attitudes Nothing remains quite the same with all our running and all our cunning. If we couldn't laugh, we'd all go insane. I think he hit the nail on the head. I think that would have been a great song about anxiety, changing attitudes. So, really appreciate your listening to the show and appreciate you taking the time to comment via our Twitter page. And if you want to comment on social media, DR Chris Winner Twitter, DR Instagram, DR Chris Winner Instagram, DR Chris Winner threads. And DR Chris Winter Blue Sky. I haven't checked the Blue Sky account recently, but still waiting for follower number one, I believe. I'm not sure what Blue Sky is um, and who's spying on me based upon that account. I haven't quite figured that one out yet, but you can get the show. And you can also contact the show through YouTube. We have a YouTube page. We post all of our shows. You can contact us that way too. We had a question that came through this week, and I'm not going to read the name of the individual who hosted it just out of, uh, um, privacy, but we'll call her ZF and ZF wrote, um, let's see here. My boyfriend has somnia, and I came across your podcast episode. I'm wondering whether it's bound to, or does it most often take a turn for the worst and into the realm of assault, or is it possible to mitigate it so that it never veers into the assault territory? Um, and she wrote, not speaking just about fondling, but you know things going further than that. I really appreciate you taking the time to reach out to the show. She is actually referring to episode fifty six. We did on sexomnia, which relates a little bit to this episode because it is a parasomnia as well, too. Difficult to answer that question. I actually don't know the answer in terms of great research showing, hey, if somebody's showing tendencies towards a little bit of sexomnia, a little bit of fondling, a little bit of inappropriate touching, Will it necessarily take that turn? So I, I think that the way I would answer that is, number one, it can. Number two, if you look at where sexomnies typically start in adolescence, they tend to peak, I think, around age 32, much more common in women, uh, men than in women, and sort of die out towards the end of that age bracket. There's reason to think that as an individual sort of peaks in sort of hormonal maturity and goes past that, that, you know, as hormones fade, as as individuals, men get older, you may see less sexomnia, but that's not something that I would bank on. You know, a a fair amount of these individuals who participate in sexomnias, there are violent sort of sexual acts. I think one study said that 13% of individuals Experiencing sex have been involved in the legal system in some way, you know, being accused of something. So, I don't know of any way to mitigate it. Things you can do to stop it. I think it's just dialogue and sort of being prepared for it. There've been some studies on hypnosis that might be helpful, uh, I believe. Um, but um, just one of those things is you know to be careful with. Even if it's never turned ugly, uh, doesn't mean that it can't. Um, wish I could give you a better answer. Uh, but thanks for writing in and she wrote in through our instagram page again dr's winner so before we get into the show wild night is the opening track off of van morrison's fifth album wanted to talk about van morrison for a long time i'm a huge fan this came off of his album tupelo honey again was the 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 lead off track uh, it was recorded in 71 huge album i mean he had such a string of albums he had this for his first album was not great and what's crazy is his first album blowing your mind was Brown-Eyed Girl, yet it kind of got panned. And then he recorded Astral Weeks, which is an amazing song, um, sweet thing. Just so many great songs on there. uh, Then Moon Dance, then Choir, and then his fifth album was... was Tupelo Honey, of which Wild Night was on. Don Mellencamp re-recorded the song, had a big hit with it as well, too. It's just a really unique song. Very powerful. Great. Uh, Quick little note about Van Morrison. We could have talked about him during episode 63 about sleep and anxiety. Had huge stage fright. Um, So much so that when he recorded, he was asked to, the band, Robbie Robertson's group, the band uh, recorded... Their final concert, it was called The Last Waltz. Martin Scorsese famously filmed it. This was in 1976. They asked him to come record, um, sing with him Caravan, which is a big song off of his Moondance album, 1970. And they literally had to kick him on the stage. I mean, Van Morrison was famous for saying, when people would say to him, look, Van, like the show must go on. He would say, no, it doesn't. It does not have to go on. They literally had to kick him onto stage to to um to perform with the band. And I'll invite you to look it up. Watch the last waltz. is a great musical performance, but that performance in general, just watch how it starts. He's kind of looking around really kind of nervously. by the end of it, the you can see on like Robbie Robertson's face, who we recently lost, by the way. Uh, they're just incredulous by the performance he gives. So, and a lot of people think that the band song Stage Fright, which is one of my favorites, it's also performed in The Last Waltz, it was sung by Rick Danko. Um, it was actually about Robbie Robertson. It was, and that song was released in uh, 1970, I believe. And it wasn't until 72, 73, when Van Morrison really started having the effects of his Stage Fright. So cool story. I wish it were true, but it's not. So let's get into REM behavior disorder. As the description sort of illustrates, this is behaviors that arise out of REM sleep, which you've talked about, dream sleep. So you're having abnormal behaviors during REM sleep. And that's happening despite the fact that during REM sleep naturally, we're paralyzed. And we've talked about this before with sleep paralysis and just natural REM sleep. When you dream, you're paralyzed, which is great because when you have a dream about something, you are not going to act it out. So in REM behavior disorder, that natural atonia, loss of muscle tone is gone, releasing the individual to act out uh, a dream. And this condition can be a strong predictor of what we call synucleopathies, synucleinopathies, which are like Parkinson's disease, dementia, Lewy body. I think Robin Robin Williams famously had um, Lewy, uh, diffuse Lewy body uh, diagnosed prior to to when he was dead, uh, to to, to when he died. Um, So characteristics, these are individuals that during sleep are having complicated acting out behaviors that if you awaken them, they'll often tell you what they were doing. Oh my gosh, I had a dream that wolves had broken into our house and I was fighting the wolves off when you woke me up. And because of the fighting and the loss of paralysis, and the nature of these dreams being somewhere distressing and violent, people often hurt themselves and can actually hurt others, which can be a real issue for for people who are struggling with this condition. The, The injury potential is very high. And usually the behaviors and the dreams that are being acted out are coming from a negative place, a negative dream situation. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody exhibiting REM behavior disorder via a positive dream vehicle i dreamt i was surrounded by a lot of friends on the beach and we were making each other mixed drinks and when they woke me up i was sitting there shaking the the container of mojitos before i poured them out for my friend like i've never heard that before it's always a violent confrontation uh houses on fire which mike berbiglia the comedian uh, who actually did a whole, you know, Netflix show about this? I mean, kind of parts of it, was on tour in Washington State and had a dream that something like a guided missile was flying towards his hotel room. And even though he was on the second store, he jumped out of the window and seriously hurt himself, had like 30 some odd stitches, and to this day sleeps in a sleeping bag wearing mittens. So he cannot act out the dream. So lovely that Mike Berbiglia can take something that's kind of stressful and tragic like that and turn it into something funny. But because of this predictive value of REM behavior disorder, it's become a real negative for people. And we will talk more about that towards the end of the show and and what that actually means. So individuals typically wake up, remember the dream. This differentiates it from non-REM parasomnias, like think about a sleep terror, wake up screaming, yelling, and have no memory of it the next day. Most people with a REM type parasomnia will remember it generally affects somewhere between maybe five to 13% of the population. But as you start getting the population above 60 below 60, it's something like 2% of the population. So it's very, very, it's fairly rare and a bit more frequent in men at an older age, I think at a younger age, it's equal, or I might be getting that backwards. Definitely more common in men, but I think that as individuals get older, it equalizes. So anyway, you have to check on that. don't want to give you misinformation um, on that. So again, we call this a parasomnia. And if you're a listener of the podcast, you're gonna be pretty aware of parasomnias because we've talked about them before. Sleep paralysis, episode 19, night terrors, episode 30, catathrenia, episode 56, uh, sexomnia, which we just talked about. These are unusual behaviors arising out of sleep, and we generally divide them as to REM behavior, uh, REM related parasomnies and non REM related parasomnies. So, the other way we can divide REM behavior disorder is whether it is primary or secondary, meaning is it originating by itself, or is it a manifestation of another disorder? And so that's sort of a way we can kind of pull these things apart. Um, When you think about secondary uh, REM behavior disorder, sleep apnea is a very common cause of it. Uh, Narcolepsy, uh, Guillain-Barre, encephalitis, drugs, alcohol withdrawal. There's lots of autoimmune disorders, tumors, strokes. There's other things that can cause it Outside of it, sort of developing idiopathically, um, uh, which we you know, is, is sort of you know, it's coming about all by itself. Alcohol withdrawal is a big one. It's usually acute alcohol withdrawal. So, an individual who's never had rem behavior disorders before decides, you know what, I'm through with alcohol. Acting out dreams might be something you would see in that sort of transitionary part of an individual coming off the alcohol. How do we diagnose it? There's sort of two main ways we diagnose it. Somebody telling you the story, my partner acts out their dreams versus a sleep study where when we hook somebody up for a sleep study, we're actually measuring both sleep stage and muscle tone, typically leads on your legs, measuring certain muscles in your legs, uh, leads on your face, measuring your jaw, um, tone. So we can measure that in in various places. And what you should see is when an individual goes into REM sleep, muscle tone disappears, flat lines. When we see individuals going into REM sleep and we see a maintenance of muscle tone, then that is one way we can sort of lead to that diagnosis. The treatment of the condition is disappointing to say the least. Older treatments typically melatonin, I'm sorry, clonazepam, which is benzodiazepine, which comes with Risks of addiction and also um, clonazepam also influences negatively the overall quality of our sleep. And it's not really curing it, it's just sort of a, a treatment for it. Melatonin is a newer treatment that's been looked at and has shown some promise. So when we talk about melatonin and some of the negative feelings I have about it, when it comes to melatonin being used for jet lag or shift work disorder or REM behavior disorder, um, I think it's perfectly appropriate if you have a clinician who knows what they're doing. So now we get to the prognosis. And this is probably the reason why we are on episode 65 and we're just getting to REM behavior disorder, even though I reference a lot. And it's probably the reason why I talked a little bit too much about Van Morrison and the band, because the prognostic value of REM behavior disorder is very discouraging. And what I mean by that is when I was in medical school residency, we were taught that about a third of people who manifest primary REM behavior disorder, meaning it's not because you are a heavy drinker and you stop drinking all of a sudden, but primary, it's, it's, it's happening on its own, that about a third of those people would go on to develop Parkinson's disease or some sort of related condition which is terrible. And a really difficult thing to talk about with a patient who just came to you because they broke a lamp on the side of their table. But when you look at current research about REM behavior disorder, that number is probably closer to 92%. So 92% of idiopathic REM behavior disorder is probably going to lead itself to a neurodegenerative neurodegenerative disorder. And it can be years and years and years for that to take place. So what do we do with that information? Well, I think the first thing we wanna do is we wanna look, we wanna be sure about a diagnosis. We wanna make sure that we are in fact dealing with REM behavior disorder and not something that mimics it. Um, there was a great study uh, paper uh, out of Sleep Medicine Review, REM sleep behavior disorder mimics and variants, I think is a very important paper. And when you look at that, you know, sleep apnea, non-REM types of parasomnias, epilepsy, uh, seizures that are happening at night. So it just, there are lots of things that can be in there. So the first thing we wanna do with somebody who's come to us concerned about behaviors at night or concerned that they have REM behavior disorder is make pretty damn sure that this is what's going on and ruling out other things that could be mimicking, mimicking the disorder or, or look like the disorder. I think once we get to a place where we are pretty definitive about the diagnosis, then we have decisions to make. And that's really what I wanted to talk about for the remainder of this podcast because unfortunately we don't have great treatments and so when an individual comes to the office and says well i'm here because i act out my dream sometime and sometimes i wake up with bruises and one time i accidentally elbowed my partner and i felt really bad about it so i just i'm here to you know figure out what this is and get some treatment for it there really isn't any treatment not only is there no treatment but if we diagnose this disorder, we have a very interesting moral dilemma as clinicians is what do we do with it? And there was a great paper that out of current um, sleep medicine, it was 2021, it was called REM sleep behavior disorder as a pathway to dementia, if, when, how, what, and why should physicians disclose the diagnosis and risk for dementia? This was, uh, Malcaney and 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 Winger, who wrote it. And basically they're saying, look, not many doctors are talking about the tremendous risk of neurodegenerative disorders in these patients. It's like less than 15%. And that's not because they don't know about it, it's because they're choosing not to talk about it. And I get it. <laughs> you know. That is a heavy thing to talk about. The the only thing that I can sort of put anywhere near that is the patient who comes to see me, I'm a neurologist, but they're not coming to see me for a neurology issue. They're coming to see me because they snore. And so as soon as they walk in, I notice they're kind of slow, a little shuffling, their facial expression is a little off maybe even a little bit of a tremor, they've got Parkinson's disease. No, no problem, people have Parkinson's disease. But as I sit here and talk to the person and kind of look through their medical record, no mention of Parkinson's disease. So my next tactic is to always say, what other significant medical issues are you dealing with? And if they don't mention Parkinson's disease and there's no medications, we have a, we have an issue which is, hey, no problem, we can get this snoring thing taken care of. I wanna to talk to you about something that's a little bit concerning to me, and I hope it doesn't catch you off guard because we just met. But has anybody ever talked to you about the specter of, of Parkinson's disease? I know, the wife's no, the husband, the partner, no. That is heavy duty. But I feel like as a doctor, I need to address that because it's sitting right in front of me. And listen, no ill will or judgment on the, on the partner. It's hard to see this diet develop when you're with somebody every day. And so REM behavior disorder kind of falls in that category. And unlike Parkinson's disease, a motivating factor I have when I say that to the Parkinson's patients is, Hey, we can, we can help. There are disease modifying treatments and medications and surgery. Let's get on this and really improve not only the quality of your life, but maybe increase your chances that you don't fall. Or we can slow the progression. I mean, there's lots of reasons why, as a clinician, I don't want to sit on Parkinson's disease. REM behavior disorder. You know, so number one, there's nothing we can do about it once we tell them, hey, you're you've got this acting out thing that might mean that you've got a higher chance of this neurodegenerative disorder that we can't do anything about. Number two, are you certain you're right? Are you certain? Are you so certain you're right about the diagnosis? You're going to make this person worry about this condition just sitting around waiting for the neurodegenerative disorder to come in what 92% of the time, you know, and it could be years. So is it right for us to kind of create angst unnecessarily. And unnecessarily is a weighted word about saying it's unnecessary, but somebody might argue that it is. So what are the arguments for full disclosure? I think patients have the right to know. We we are partners with our patients. We are not in charge of our patients. There's no sort of hierarchy here where I'm above you. This is your medical history. It's your right to know. I think disclosure helps us in a shared decision-making process. You can't Make decisions with me if you don't know what we're making decisions about. I think it engenders trust, which I think is very important for you to have with your doctor. I was just talking to somebody the other day who's gone through some pretty serious medical issues, very great person. And she said something to me. She said, I love my current doctor. Like we've been through it together and she's got my back and there's nothing, nothing makes me feel better than to hear a patient say to me, they trust and feel good about the relationship they have with their, with their doctor. I think the other big one is patients are able to plan. I I want that personally. And I think it's patients have a right, and families have a right to be able to plan for things that might be coming. Um, there also may be trials that are available to a patient that allow them to seek help that that I'm not aware of or may not exist yet. And it also allows a little bit more of a careful monitoring of that patient going forward with everybody on the same page of, hey, you're fine now, you'll be fine for a long time, but we're going to be looking out for these types of things. The other option is what what they call wishful waiting, where I'm aware of it. I don't tell you about it, and some people argue, "Hey, this is good too because think of the anxiety." I mean, I'm pretty, I'm wound pretty tightly. I my father told me one time, "Hey, Chris, you know, there are some people in our family who have this medical issue. You might want to get screened for it." And I remember thinking, "Oh my God," I, just, I was so anxious until I got screened for this thing that. I did. You know it, it really kind of affected me that for that week until I could get in to see the doctor and, and get checked out for this. So, I, I think that anxiety is a real thing, and even people who don't really struggle that much with anxiety, um, there's a long latency here, and some degree of predicted prediction kind of wanes when you're that far out. There's no therapy, so why bring something up? Um, and there's a lot of that's unknown about the risks of this condition in patients who are taking antidepressants and have other things going on medically with them. So, you know, there's some, uh, there's enough unknowns there that I think doctors can convince themselves, Hey, I'm not going to talk to a patient about this. So I don't like unhappy podcasts. I'd much rather talk to you about fun, farewell concerts about the band and whatnot, but Invariably, these are important issues. So, as something that we see quite frequently, people acting out dreams, people married and having relationships with people who act out dreams, while certainly I want that individual to be safe and not hurt themselves and not hurt others, there are bigger issues at hand with REM behavior disorder that I wanted to touch on in this episode and start a dialogue with you. And You know, I think that it's every patient's right to know as much or as little as they want to. So I I think that that's probably where I would fall. I think that maybe the relationship is, hey, you've got this condition called REM behavior disorder. There are some associated issues with this condition that some of my patients choose to want to know more about. Others would rather not. When my father told me this thing about this condition in my family, one of his siblings elected not to find out about that. And that's their right. So to me, I think that when you talk about these types of things, it's really important to make sure that we are making patient-centric decisions about how we move forward, not with the therapy and the treatment and the management of the condition, but but more so with what this condition means and helping guide people through that process of understanding it if they choose to do so. So that's it. Really want to thank you all for listening to the podcast. If you want to interact with the podcast like Brendan RPGST interacted with and gave us the Jimmy Buffett song that's as smooth as sea glass, uh, you can interact with uh, with us through Dr. Chris Winter Twitter, Dr. Chris Winner Instagram, Dr. Chris Winter, uh TikTok, Threads. Uh, check us out on our YouTube channel. And until next week, sleep well.